0: Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have in our virtual studios Robin Dreek, and we're going to talk about leadership, sizing people up, The Code of Trust, some of his best-selling books, plus some insights that you might find incredibly valuable in your security leadership career. So stick around. Of course, follow us on LinkedIn if you have not already, and, and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you, G-Mark. Thanks for having me on. I truly appreciate it. I love the. By the way, I love the uh, podcast voice. <laughs> well, thank you. a couple of people told me that. I said, well, I've got a face for radio, and so that's probably why I ended up this way. But I've always figured if someone's got to listen to me for quite a few minutes, then the least I could do is try to be articulate and make it sound good. So so far, so good. I figure if I washed out in cybersecurity, I can always get a job doing voiceovers. I have to work on my, you're great, but we'll get there. Perfect. Anyway, for those who have not had the privilege to either read your books or even hear about you, anything you like to say, kind of introducing yourself. I mean, where'd you come from? How'd you get here? And... And, and yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> uh,
1: everything's an evolution. So my, my general way I was introducing myself is former head of the FBI Counterintelligence Behavioral Analysis Program and Spy Recruiter and the founder and CEO of People Formula, a leadership and communication strategies company. But now I'm just saying recovering Spy Recruiter and expert in trust there you go
0: <laughs> and that's interesting because when we talk about the concept of you know, dealing with people in spies and having having worked at the bureau for as many years as you had it probably gave you some unique insights into both the the positive side as well as what the negative side of people would you, would you say that's a true statement
1: yesish i'll say yesish because i don't see a positive or negative with people it's more of a just people When you spend your entire career trying to forge relationships with absolutely everyone that our country and our allies might see as a potential threat, then what you do is you learn to quickly let go of any preconceived biases you have when engaging, because if you engage with any sort of bias, it's going to come across as very judgmental to others and their shields will be up and you're not going to forge any sort of relationship, no relationship, no information. No information, no safety and security. So you really, if you want to succeed, you just learn to dive
0: deep and be curious. And so what this suggests then is that trust seems to be kind of a core element of any type of relationship. It is. uh, Trust
1: is safety. And when you offer safety and psychological comfort to all and to those you're engaging, that actually forges that kind of trust, which is predictable behavior in others. And that's Because when people can predict what you're going to do and when you can predict what they're going to do, it really, and as, as you're a leadership expert, you know that one of the things leaders always need is situational awareness because when you have that situational awareness, you can make decisions to forge forward and that's what allows people to do.
0: And you'd mentioned something that trust equates to predictable behavior. That's kind of what I got out of that last thing. And for those who are in cybersecurity, one of the things we kind of look at is, well, if we're predictable, we then become a better target potentially for adversaries. So there is some value in unpredictability. But then again, when it comes to people in our own organizations, it seems that predictability would then become the great asset.
1: Yes and no. I, I'm, I'm with you. Predictability Makes it extremely easy for social engineers, you know, malicious penetration, you know, at, you know, people trying to come at you to predict exactly what you're going to do. You know, Robert Cialdini's books, you know, influence and the six levers of influence make human beings exceptionally predictable when you're going to exercise them against another human being. Because as you know, the greatest threats to our security is the human factor because we're the fallible uh, portions of the engagement. So, yeah, human beings are predictable on the side where if you're going to take advantage of it, but on the side where you want to instill trust, you want to be able to predict because anytime you can reasonably predict what someone's going to do, you're not going to mismanage your expectations of the relationship.
0: Yeah, I think I talked about Robert Cialdini in one of my early, early shows about his principles of persuasion. And for those who have not read it, he came up with a revised version of the book about a year and a half ago, and it contained a lot more information in there. But for those who are not familiar, the, the reciprocity, which is if I hold the front door for you, you'll hold the next door for me. And we kind of expect that. And the reciprocity doesn't have to be proportional. I can give you a free sample and then you're going to feel like you have to buy the whole product. And we find out that from a security perspective is that we want to be aware that on the good side, if we treat our people well, if we give them something, uh, here's a little free something or other that they tend to want to reciprocate. Absolutely. Matter of fact, the, I'm, I'm, I've read his revised vision as
1: well. And the one, the add on, I thought was the really powerful one that I love, and that is uh,
0: unity. And when we think about the unity, because it was kind of absent from the first draft, I guess if you have to update things, you have to add yeah. one more. I mean, Got even to come Stephen, up least even Stephen Covey there. had an eighth <laughs> principle that came out, although I think it was his son, Stephen F. Covey, who published that one. Right. Um, second was scarcity, it tends to influence people's behavior. You know, only three seats remaining. Sale ends at midnight tonight. Things such as that.
1: We're in a pandemic and there's no more toilet paper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The used car market right now is a great example of it. Microchips are going away. Gasoline, you know, drives, you know, so it's not that there is more or less gasoline driving up prices. It's consumer sentiment that is driving up prices of a lot of things, you know, so when you... Bring real scarcity and the imagined scarcity into it, there's there
0: become massive influencers of human behavior. And the third one is authority, where in Cialdini's principles and the principle of persuasion, somebody in authority tends to cause you to do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. And of course, been career in law enforcement, you probably have an insight on that.
1: Yeah, and actually that's pr- the big principle behind everything. What I did was to not try to exercise that authority because when people Are sensing that someone's trying to influence them using authority, you get a lot of rebellion. You got a lot of shields up. It's a very powerful lever of influence. That's why, you know, if a social engineer is coming at you, they're going to hold a clipboard, they're going to have a suit, or they're going to have the proper attire, they're going to have a name badge, all these, you know, props that give them that sense of authority to influence your behavior. But at the same time, that is the last thing i ever try to do is use any sort of authority when chatting with someone because literally no one had to talk with me and if you want to inspire trust if you want to inspire good information coming accurate information you want them to give it from their point of view willingly and wantingly rather than trying to coerce it in any way because then you then it's all circumspect
0: and i think in the cybersecurity world the corollary to that is when i ask people How many people in your organization can screw things up with a computer? The answer is just about everybody. Then the question is, how many of them work for you? And almost none of them do. And as a head of security, you've got a special challenge in that you don't have authority over the individuals whom you need to change their behavior. So you have to influence them. And then, of course, that brought me back to the principles of persuasion and influence is why that works so well and things such as that. And I actually, so
1: even though I got really hypersensitive to the words because having that super type A personality, because yeah, I went to the Naval Academy, Marine Corps officer, FBI, counterintelligence, that is a screaming hardcore type A, which is all about power, not leadership. Leadership is a learned thing where leadership's about others, power is about self. You know, Robert Green's 48 Laws of Power was the greatest book on how to be a narcissist I have ever read. But when you're going to, you know, exercise leadership and make it about others, you really have to get over your own sense of greatness, you got to get over that. And so words like influence and persuasion, they they're almost at the same level of manipulation to me, because it's still what I want. I like words like inspire. Trying to convince you to do something is about what I want. Trying to inspire you to want to means it has to be what you want. So I always try to communicate in terms of the other person's priorities, give them resources to make choices that are good for them from their point of view. Which means you have to be a careful listener. Extremely careful listener, a very good listener. Take it all in without judgment. Know what your, know what your own confirmation biases are. And have ways and things in place to try your best to overcome them. And if you can't be transparent about them as well, because people aren't looking for you to be perfect, they're looking for you to make an effort. And so as long as you're making an effort on their behalf, you're showing demonstrating vulnerability, and you're demonstrating transparency. So they have all the information that they think they need to make a good choice, because that that creates that feeling of comfort and security. So they they can make choices, then you're going to have a great relationship.
0: You had mentioned the concept of vulnerability, and I think it's rather interesting because to a certain extent, in the cybersecurity world, of course, vulnerabilities are things you, pass, <laughs> you try to get rid of, yes. but here we're not talking about that. Here we're talking about psychological, even interpersonal vulnerabilities, where I show that, hey, I'm human. I can make a mistake. I can have feelings that don't always align with perhaps what yours are, but they still need to be acceptable. How does vulnerability or, or disclosing or kind of sharing that help build trust? It totally empowers the other person with
1: knowledge. It also shows that you're not, that you're less insecure about who you are. There's a couple of guarantees of human behavior. One of them is that every human being is always gonna act in what they think is their best interest in terms of their own safety, security prosperity and their own psychological comfort. All I have to do is figure out what you think that is and I now know what you're going to do. The other thing is, is that we're all insecure about something, we all have shame about something now the people that are the most secure most co- self confident but they balance that self confidence with humility are the ones that can actually can demonstrate vulnerability where they actually know what their strengths are because you can't you can't demonstrate vulnerability and be a complete bumbling idiot because if you do that you're just validating that you are a fool and that no one's going to listen to you or or want to chat with you or be part of your life but if you have competence in the areas that you know your strengths are, and you can demonstrate that vulnerability. So you can say, Hey, here's my blind spots. And if you want even better to take that up a notch. So here are my blind spots, but here's what I'm doing to overcome my blind spots. I have this person in my life who I call a loving critic. I have these teacher mentors and guides. This is the program I have in place because I know these blind spots about myself. It is what it is. These are my strengths. And that's all now knowledge for you to make good, healthy choices for your life and moving forward.
0: And that's what people are looking. And it goes a lot more beyond than just job interviews, such as <laughs> they say, well, you know, tell us something when you were embarrassed or tell us something went wrong. But when I, what I hear from you saying here is that with a kind of a fulcrum of confidence of what you're aiming for, you've got kind of two variables. One is vulnerability and the other is arrogance. And they kind of act as counterweights to each other. The more arrogant you are, the less willing you are to be vulnerable. And presumably, the more willing you're able to display some amount of vulnerability, not making yourself a hopeless mess, but it reduces that perception of arrogance and therefore allowing a person to gain a little bit more confidence in who you are and therefore increase that level of trust.
1: Right. Arrogance is just another sign of over overdeveloped ego, overdeveloped sense of self and our own grandiosity, our own entitlement, because we think our title and position entitle us to things, but in reality, no one cares about your title and position. They just care about how you treat them. They care about how you demonstrate how they're valued, how you want to affiliate with them, and whether you create an environment of safety and trust for them to be a resource
0: for you accomplishing the mission. I remember years ago I spoke with an author, T. Harv Ecker, and it was actually when I had command of the Center for Naval Leadership, and I flew out to meet with him to spend some time with him in his, in his leadership team. Yes, he had asked to speak with me because he was putting together a leadership symposium. And Harv had written a book on a millionaire mindset, and it was very successful in the speaking world. And so we got to talk about things. And he said, uh, tell me a little bit about how you guys do leadership. How do you get people in the military? I said, well, we have a boot camp. Boot camp, write that down. It's like, hmm, hmm. And he's just talking this to his, his, uh, his assistants there. I said, well, how do people get there? Well, on a bus. Yeah, I want a bus. And then, OK, and where, where's this going? OK, you got a drill instructor with a big hat. Yeah, we want big hats, and we want yelling. And, and all he say I said, wait a minute. We haven't talked at all about the content of your leadership event that you want to do. And he looked at him and he said, Mark, let me show you something. And he held up a piece of paper and it listed all of these different elements of what he was going to cover in his talk. And he said, this took me about 20 minutes to write. He said, I have already pre-sold a thousand seats at $2,000 a pop, $2 million based on 20 minutes of work. And the content doesn't really matter. People will, and this was a quote that resonated with me, people will remember how you made them feel, not necessarily what they learned. And for Harv, his understanding of human nature was, it's all about how people feel at the end of the interaction. And for someone who's taught a lot and done a lot of courseware, and of course, even doing these podcasts, we're trying to help people in their careers. It's an important thing to be aware of when we're trying to influence others, is if you're teaching or trying to help people with security initiatives or awareness, et cetera, remember that all that knowledge in the world is not going to necessarily help if they walk away saying, man, that guy was an arrogant jerk, or I feel terrible about it, or I feel threatened. So it's about how you feel. Yeah.
1: Matter of fact, the quote I use on my, my opening page is, it's not how you make people feel
0: about you, it's how you make them feel about themselves that matters. And I think that's really important for a lot of those left-brain cybersecurity folks to realize that a lot of decisions are made on the other side of the brain. Yeah, absolutely. It's about making it about others. Yeah. Well, we, we jumped into Cialdini, and so we might as well finish up, up some of this, uh, the top six or the six. His fourth one was commitment and consistency. And being consistent is an important way for influencing. Why, why, why would you find that? And how would you find that valuable in your work? Consistency, yes, because again, it becomes predictable. When people predict what you're going to do is
1: a big help. If you're going to use consistency to take advantage of someone, that is huge. I used to run courses with a couple of social engineers and we put together and using consistency for, to reveal information, with, especially if you're using a group mentality where someone goes around and says, hey, what do you want for, you know, what do you generally have for breakfast every day? Scrambled eggs, bacon, scrambled eggs, bacon, scrambled eggs, bacon. Next person says scrambled eggs, bacon. So you have that consistency. Then everyone starts revealing what they give, that what their strategies for password creation. Boom, 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 boom. Consistency. So that's where consistency is there as well as groupthink. But consistency when it comes to interpersonality. Personal relationships is huge because it it helps people predict what people are going to do, and consistent people make
0: you feel safe. And so it's that law lack of unpredictability. That is to say, we take away the fear that somebody's going to act in a manner which we didn't anticipate, and therefore that lack of fear, which is another alternative, the flip side of the consistency. Saying if I act consistently, then the other person reduces their concern. I'm not going to play gotcha. I'm not going to come out of the woodwork. But as you had said, can be turned against them to try to get people to fall in line.
1: Right. I mean, so you have uh, like Simon Sinek he's got his golden circle he talks about and that's what leaders do is they create a golden circle of safety which is part of that is consistency where people can reasonably predict how they're going to be treated so they know that they can have the safety to innovate and create you know strategies to overcome challenges and problems people that are inconsistent i'd, I'd say most likely people are seeing inconsistencies in behaviors you know people that are psychologically inconsistent and emotionally inconsistent when engaging those are the ones that are scared to work for because you never know what you're going to get on any given day. So, consistency, I'm always looking for consistency in the areas of
0: psychological engagement. Yeah, I say if there's areas to be consistent in that security leaders could work on, probably what you have for lunch is not going to be high on that list, but there probably are things that would be up there. Emotional consistency. And it's a stressful job. A lot of people recognize that. And in stress, we can sometimes get tempted to operate out of our well-rehearsed channel. But in your experience, have you found out that when you apply stress in different levels, as the stress level increases, what does that do to a person's responses? Do they tend to warp out of normal or do they lose their covering and then go revert to whom they really are? Watching people respond to stress really is a great indicator about how
1: mature they are and how far down their own path they are in their own area of expertise, because the more stress you put on some people, if they're really highly functional, highly skilled, and they're at that in other words, they're at that mastery level where they've solved 10,000 hours worth of problems that if you induce high stress on them, it's just another challenge to, it's another problem to solve. Cause that's what leaders do every single day. They just solve problems. That's all it is. Some days are more, some days are less, but every day is about solving challenges and problems and innovating through them. You can tell the, you know, the leadership maturity of someone by how they respond to tempo of change, which is stress, the types of challenges that they face, if they're new or imagined. I think COVID is a great example of this. No leader that I know fa- has faced anything like COVID before. And I always say, you know, and you get it from being your dimes in the Navy, you have all these standard operating procedures, SOPs. And I'll tell you what, there is no SOP for chaos. <laughs> you know, and so when you face something you've never faced before, you have to innovate to solve the problem. The ones that are freaking out, stressing, where you know they start acting irrationally, their behavior becomes erratic. Those are the ones that you start distancing yourself from because they need some time to re- collect themselves back up to start cognating and thinking rationally again to solve the problem. Because as they're spinning around in a world of asking why questions, why did this happen? Why is this going on? That's not solving the problem. Solving problems requires leaders to ask what questions what specifically happened what can we do about it because because i'm always looking for people that are cognating thinking and asking what questions to solve problems to maintain no matter what stress levels hitting it it, they don't i don't think great
0: leaders don't see things as stressful or less stressful they just see challenges yeah and i I think inducing stress into others that goes back to robert green's 48 laws of power try to rattle the other guy and as you had said it's a nice recipe for narcissism. Yeah, it's not nice. And, <laughs> it's not- uh, yeah, I remember I actually a friend of mine gave me that book. I've got it here on my bookshelf and I I, I can't read through it. It's, I just get to it to the point where it said, reading the table of contents is about as deep as I need to get to. And you can almost, yeah. You know, as each of us reaches over our shoulder and kind of points at the book. So that one, yeah. So I got my 48 laws of power to my left from last
1: year. And I just, uh, I'm almost done with the, the rules of uh, human nature. By him this year. What so interesting thing? Side note about Robert Greene. I've always tried to figure out because I've I read a, a, a decent amount his books. I almost put Forty Eight Laws of Power down numerous times because it's kind of dark, like I already said. And the forty and so Laws of Human Nature I was excited about because it's not talking about you know controlling and manipulating people, but it still had that same kind of tenor to it. And I was trying to ask myself what is it about his writings, and this is it. At least from my perspective, and that is he talks about and really highlights unhealthy behaviors in human beings. All the other books I love reading are the ones that are talking about the positive aspect of how we can do this and how we can do this and how we can do this, you know, very, you know, Simon Sinek esque, you know, leaders eat last, you know, start with why or or any other great ones. But Robert Greene is more of a matter of fact.
0: Here's all the human behaviors, and a lot of them are very unhealthy behaviors. (laughs) And unfortunately, though, or you know he's a realist. I don't know unfortunately, yeah. good unfortunate. way to put it. It's it's a realistic view of things. We can be very Pollyannish and assume that everyone's going to be and such and such. I remember when I when I left active duty in the Navy and when I finally retired, had a gentleman I've been talking to. He said, uh, "G Mark, be aware of the what you worked for for thirty years." That sense of integrity, that sense of personal honor and everything that you thought was, you know, the officer and a gentleman, which is really uh, more than just a title. In fact, used to be commissioned an officer and a gentleman until I think around 1980 when the academies allowed women to finally graduate from them. And he said, you're going to find out when you hit the business world, it's not the case at all. That you have people who will cheat, they will lie, they will steal from you, and they will do it with a smile on their back. Smile, you know, smile it, as you, they put a knife in your back. Sorry to, to cut that in half. But what are your thoughts on how do you spot, if you will, spot the phony? Are there tools are there insights that you gain? Because from a security perspective, obviously, we, we have vendors that come in all the time. Sometimes vendors are legit. Sometimes they're not. We have social engineers. How, how do you pick that out? Are there any techniques that you su- could suggest?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's the one I love the most. I think the greatest thing you can do, because there's no, there's no spotting deception. If there was, people would be millionaires working it. You know, People try to do it. There's a lot of frauds out there. Using nonverbal behavior alone is not going to do it. The best people in the world will be 50% accurate, and I know the best people in the world, and they'll tell you the same thing. So what I'm always looking for, I'm looking for congruency of behavior, words, and actions, because we have a hard time being, in. it's easier to say, people that are trying to defraud you in some way, there's going to be a lot of incongruent behaviors. And what I mean is you, you're going to see potentially nonverbal stress indicators, but their words are going to sound very good, but it's incongruent with their nonverbal saying they're going to high stress indicators, eyebrow compression, lip compression, a lot of times tempo shifts of change of how they're engaging. will either speed up or slow down. So I'm looking for words, which are about me. So they're seeking my thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of my priorities, validating me without judging me and giving me choices. And I'm looking for lots of nonverbal comfort displays with that. And then when I have a question where I'm looking for follow-up and looking and seeking transparency, which is another great sign of trust, and having that transparency, I should be able to get rapid answers quickly, with a lot of clarity and more understanding when you speak. If I have less understanding or no more understanding when I'm seeking a clarifying question, and I have another sign, the likelihood of them trying to take advantage of me in some way is probably a lot higher.
0: And that almost sounds like a formula for how to answer political questions. I'm not dissing professional politicians at all, but very often we find out that a question is asked and they give an answer that has nothing to do with answering yes, that. Yes, absolutely. And Great it's, example. It's, uh, it's not that they don't understand the question. And I've done, and I'm sure you've done professional training. I've been trained as, you know, doing press interviews and things such as that. And one of the key things is, is that, you know, not to be arrogant about it, but you don't necessarily owe an exact answer to every exact question that was posed to you. You know, why, you know, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Has no proper answer to it. So you can't answer that. And so to a certain extent, we have to be on target and on message. And in the security world, particularly for trying to influence executives, people around the boardroom or senior executives who don't have the background that we would have understanding what is the real nature of the threat, then part of that influence has to be, if you had said, of course, building that trust, that congruency is important. But as you're trying to communicate that, to a certain extent, in some circles, power is the coin of the realm. We look at geopolitics where we say, well, what's What's the overall arching political system in the world? Well, it's anarchy, right? Technically, there's nobody in charge, and everybody can operate to their own benefit as compared to like an autarky or something else like that. But we're not all in a giant democracy. When we find out that transparency is important for building relationships, and I think you and I would were we to get together and get to know each other well, and that would make a very good recipe, are there situations where... Transparency becomes almost a liability and therefore would handicap somebody from being able to effectively influence the other person or accomplish your job because that other person is coming from a power recognizing position, and they don't care about you or making a friend. they just want to know can I you know, bump with you and you, you you hold up to it
1: so yes ish <laughs> is a way I'll answer it, is it well if there's a First of all, I'm always going to default to i'm not going to deal with people that are going to have an unhealthy relationship you know, and if someone's going to exercise power on me, then in my business and for myself, I'm not going to do business because that is not the type of relationships I have now. There obviously are lots of instances and lots of times when you actually will have to whether you're being told to or it makes good sense to for whatever reason that you're going to have to do business with someone that exercises power, not leadership. So, yes, the important thing to do is to recognize who you're dealing with, their method of communication, and what they deem is valuable. Because I have my four, and I mentioned them briefly already, my four pillars of communicating that is seek the thoughts and opinions of others. The second one really applies to every situation that is talk in terms of the priorities and pain points and challenges of others. Three is non-judgmental validation and to seek to understand without judging the other person. And four is empower them with choices. If I'm dealing with someone who exercises power and is a power broker, if one of their priorities is lack of transparency, if one of their priorities is to be in power and control, then I'm going to honor that priority. I'm going to empower them with that knowledge. So instead of using language to someone who wants to deal with power, you should do this or you should do that. Well, that's threatening their power what I want to do is I want to at least empower them with choice with three options and given a cause and effect benefit of each of these options. So that's actually modifying your language and delivery message for the person in power. So you're not threatening that power again, because if
0: power is a priority, you want to honor it. And I like that because what it suggests is we're not being manipulative. We're not trying to go ahead and kind of outmaneuver the other individual, but rather what we're doing is we're again, listening and making our determinations in the interests of the other person. Because ultimately, as you had said earlier in the show, people tend to act in their own self-interest. Even if they do something good for somebody else, it's because they, well, typically want to. I feel feel good about that. I feel validated that I I did such and such a charitable act. But at the end of the day, it's really, there's some self-benefit in that. Just not everybody's as altruistic as the other. I'm completely with you on
1: this. The fun thing is, is when you're dealing with someone that is exercising power, their focus on themselves is so vast that their ability to even see that you're doing anything like that or talking in terms of them is, it's not there. Meanwhile, if you're the one making the conscious choice to make it about them and give them the power that they're seeking, who's in control? you're making all the conscious choices and they're just reacting to all the power moves that they're trying to make now here's the here's how it is not manipulation ever for me if someone was to call me out and say robin are you doing this on purpose because you're trying to give me power why yes i am because that's what you want if you don't want to i won't that's where i'm transparent i will be i People know that, you know, how I do what I do and how I communicate and how I try to really hard to pay attention to your priorities, your pain points, your challenges, and offer you resources in terms of those things, being transparent, be vulnerable. And if someone says, are you doing it to me now? I said, what, making it all about you? Yes, I am.
0: If you want me to stop, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm it's surprising; it's probably just neutralizes any avenue of attack they have on you and, and, and really what you're doing. In your thoughts and your approaches are to remove a lot of those barriers that other people put up to be able to listen to you. And you say in your in your book titles like it's not all about me and sizing people up in the code of trust. Uh, those you know, there's a misperception I think they could say it's like well it's not all about me it must be about well all of us but I'm still me and of course on the cover you got like this me in the middle but it's bringing other people to a point where they drop their guard, so to speak, but not in a way that they get sucker punched, but they drop their guard insofar as it removes the barriers to trust. And so that suggests that the default starting point would be maybe not distrust, but maybe non-trust, sort of a neutral do you think most people start out at zero and then they kind of go positive or negative or do they start negative or do some people just, I'll, I'll trust you till you do something bad or do we have that whole bandwidth of different behavior? It is
1: a whole bandwidth of different behaviors depending on our genetics, depending on our upbringing, depending on our context, depending on the situation in which we're dealing with people. Some people naturally default to trust. Some people default to na- not trust. It really depends. Me, I default to, not, I default to trust all the time and I'll wait until you show me not to. In order to do that, though, effectively and not be taken advantage of, you have to do your best to see the behaviors and who you're dealing with objectively. And then everything we've just
0: talked about is modeling the way of healthy communication. There is a, I try to remember where I found it, it was months ago, but somebody had animated this, it was a little trust exercise. And basically, you could say, yes, the other person says yes. And if you both you know, if, if you fight, if, if one says yes, the other says no, you're well, one's vulnerable. And then you know, if they both say no, then you both win a little bit. And so or something like that. And prisoner's dilemma is it, it a prisoner's dilemma. That is exactly it. Thank you very much. OK, so fill that gap in my brain. Anyway, what was interesting is that they had different strategies you could play against different opponents. And one of them would always give you your way, always, always be vulnerable. The other one would always try to screw you. The other one would kind of respond to you and do whatever you did. If you were good on the opening round, they were good on that round. And then if you stay good, they stay good. But if you went evil on them, then they'd, okay, fine. Well, I'm going to stay evil on you. But the optimal strategy seemed to be that you give the other party a mulligan, if you will. If you both start with trust, the other person does something distrustful, ha, ha, ha you don't immediately go to distrust. You kind of say, well, maybe they pushed the wrong button, maybe, they, and then if they come back on the trustworthy side, you haven't violated that. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it was an interesting animated exercise. I played with it for quite a while, trying to paint into the corners. I totally
1: agree. I deal with, so my son, who is now a, a Marine Corps officer and, and he just graduated the Naval Academy, and we strategize leadership challenges like this all the time whether you're, you're being ranked against anyone else, whether you're competing against anyone else, above all else, our strategy in everything we do is your personal brand, 100%. Mm -hmm. When you have a personal brand that you're there for others, that you're there to support others, that you're there to make them look good, you're there to make them be successful, you're there for the mission. That's what leaders are. And you constantly, if you are consistent, because there's that consistency again of modeling the way of the selfless servant leader, you will succeed because you cannot do anything in life without relationships. No relationships, no success.
0: No brand, no relationships. And it all comes down to trust. And so, what I hear you saying then is part of building your core brand identity is to be a trustworthy individual. 100%. And in For cyber leaders, the trust has to transcend just a simple first round of people that we talk. Yeah, it's always nice to be trusted by your troops. Okay, we learned that in the military. You lead first, and as you say you eat last. But beyond that, it's building that trust to influence the behavior of others over whom we have no direct authority. And yet, when we're perceived as being trustworthy, and as you had said in your fourth principle, empower people with choices allowing them to feel that they've got a vote too. That takes them out of the the didactic, thou shalt do this. And a lot of security had started that way. Now we're at a point where there's so much complexity out there. There needs to be choices because there's no one right way to do it. Uh, Any thoughts on that in terms of being able to incorporate a feedback loop and then determining... Yeah, these people are getting it, but maybe this one over here is not. And if you do have an individual who is just not playing well with others, so to speak, although you indicated for for you and I, we we run our own businesses, we can choose to say, I'm not going to do business with you. But for a lot of our listeners, they're in an organization and they can't just quit because they don't like somebody else. Right. What are the coping strategies for somebody when you find yourself where you've got to work with somebody, but you know they're not gonna be trustworthy necessarily. They're not gonna be honorable.
1: So you have two things, I think, when the way you described it. One is you can now predict that their behavior is not trustworthy. So you can really know (laughs) exactly where to hold them at arm's length, at what distance to hold them at arm's length, and what projects to give them or what not to give them. When you can reasonably expect something to be done, because one of the greatest predictors of human behavior is if I observe you doing something once, twice, definitely three times a certain way, the likelihood of you continuing to do it that way is almost 100%. So people keep relying on this silly thing called hope. I hope you're going to do it differently next time. No, they're not. Why would they? If they do, it's because a new priority, a new, a new stimulus entered their life, but generally they're not going to change it. So, it's up to, so you now have a choice. Manage your expectations of what you can reasonably ex- expect if you have to deal with them, if you can't remove them, if you're, if you're forced to it for the situation or not, because that's exactly what they're going to do each and every time. You can have a, a dialogue with about them. So now if for some reason you're in a position that you report on them you they report to you in some way we now just have a conversation about their behavior not judging it in any way here's here's a standard and model for what the conditions of your employment are you're either meeting that condition or not meeting that condition we have a conversation about your actions. That's it as well. And then you empower them with either making a choice and doing better in this area or not. If you don't do better in that area, I'm going to empower you with choice with ha- where you want to go next. And I'm going to help you out the door. <laughs> I mean, it's because it's, the entire time I'm not judging you. I'm just a resource for you being successful. And if you're not successful with me or on this project, I'll help you move on. But again, if you're forced to deal with that, then it's empowering them with choice about how to engage with you, it's empowering your bosses you report to with their own choice. Hey, listen, boss, when you actually give that transparency, you don't try to overstate something as being worse than it is or less than worse than it is. You literally talk about, here's where we are. Here's what everyone's working on. Here's a timeline we can meet. Here's a timeline we're not going to meet. Here's what everyone's contributing. Here's what everyone's not contributing. If we do it like this, this, and this, here's what you can expect, or we can do it like this.
0: Boss, how do you want to proceed with the team you have? And again, a lot of it is, is empowering them to make those choices. It's about them always, absolutely. And, and you offer six ways of assessing behavioral, just to say, is this relationship being strong? And uh, you know, talk about vesting, where you create the the linkage of success. I don't really want to read them, but I can, you can talk about them. You know, longevity, reliability, actions, language, stability. But as we look at those. What are your thoughts in terms of, you know, ways that people can kind of have the, not necessarily a scorecard, but kind of the gestalt to say this is working or this is not? What are the things that would either be, you know, high value items that say this is working really well or high value items that say this is really not working well? So out of all those six
1: signs, the things that I'm looking for pretty consistently across whether in short term and long term, I'm always am looking for good language. And that's someone who's using language that is at least 50, at least 50% talking in terms of other person. In other words, those four pillars of communication, they're using that effectively as well. So they're seeking the thoughts and opinions of others or talking in terms of priorities of others. They're validating others and not judging them and giving them choices. So I want someone using great language of communicating with others on the team. And I'm also looking for the sixth sign, that emotional stability. So when we are talking before about when stressful times happen, when greater challenges hit us, do they maintain a good cognitive thought process and do they just work the problem. Every time, you know, my son or a client came to me with a new thing that blew up in the world. The first thing I did was never overreact. It's just like, all right, here's the challenge. Let's work the problem. Nine eleven, 11 not nine eleven. That was what I dealt with. <laughs> COVID happened to my son. He gets recalled to the Naval Academy and you know, things, there's no SOP for chaos. And I go, all right, what do you, what's your challenge today? What's the mission? Let's work the problem. Okay. New challenge. Let's work that. He tore his ACL. All right. You tore your ACL. You want to go Marine Corps? We got to work the problem. There's no always, always me because one other thing that great leaders do is to positive outlook, never a victim, always someone who's taking action to work the
0: problem. And I think that's really important because there is a tendency for some people to blame others for their misfortune rather than accept the fact that well you kind of dug that hole you dug that hole yourself, and we can't always change others because we know how difficult it is to change ourselves. But what are the kind of self-warning signs that a person can find that will really become self-limiting in their career if they don't don't master them? Somebody perhaps early on to say you know I'm always oh woe is me it's it's the sunspots it's the other political party it's. It's the war over on the other side of the world. It's everything except your choices. And at some point in time, that's a discipline we have to learn. And it's almost an orientation. Is there anything you found successful as a Naval Academy graduate, Marine officer, uh, or working with your son who's following the same path? Congratulations, by the way. That that you would think you can share that might help people align to that standard. There's a
1: statement I was given when I was young as a new lieutenant and the it was very simple what now lieutenant and it was really simple you know chaos hits the wall and the, you're always looking around looking for trying to place blame and said, no you're in charge what now lieutenant solve the problem great another great book since we're mentioning been mentioning books I did not think I'd love it as much, but uh, I am a massive lover of Jocko Woodlink and Leif Babin's Extreme Ownership. And we've talked about other aspects of it during this too, the dichotomy of leadership, their second one, but Extreme Ownership. Anytime something went sideways with any of my clients or my son and even myself, the first thing I do is, what did I do to cause that? Because human beings very, very rarely, if ever, are doing anything to you. We're all, so the other thing I said earlier on is we're all, human beings are very predictable. And that is, first thing is we're always going to act in our own best interest. The second half of that is, I think I forgot to mention it, is we're all insecure about something. All that happens is, is that, oh, I didn't mention it. <laughs> all that happens is, is that someone does something to flare up that insecurity and it gets directed at you. And so if, if, if an insecurity gets flared up and it's coming at you, first thing you ask yourself, what did I do to flare up that insecurity to cause it to come at me? And I dive deep on this, you know. So if, if all of a sudden your ranking somewhere internally goes from number one or two down to number ten or fifteen, oh, I didn't do it. It's it's him. The system screwed up. But this person does has it out for me. I said, all right, let's let's assume they have it out for you. What did you do to cause them to have it out for you? I didn't do anything. Oh really? Think hard. Did you ever say anything negative? Did you ever give a look that was judgmental in any way of anything they've ever said or done? And then all of a sudden the brain starts working and they start tinkering in their head. I said, oh yeah, I think about a year ago. I said, it doesn't take much, but people hold resentments and they're going to get you. Now, it's up to you what you want to do about it. Own it, apologize for it, make right by it, but know that, that you caused that behavior. Now- their their behavior might be inappropriate, not culturally acceptable. doesn't matter. You can't control that. All you can control
0: is you and your reaction to it. Excellent insight. And I think it's one of the most powerful self-awareness items that people can have is yeah, no doubt. to know what it is that you're doing that has created the situation you're in. Very rarely is it external circumstance. Okay, fine. Yeah, maybe you got hit by a meteor. Well, that's not your fault. But those don't happen. And, that doesn't happen very and, often. All right, get hit by a meteor. What now, Lieutenant? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pull out, pull out of the side of your head and keep on going. Right. I think we could, we could we could talk for hours and I would love to to follow up with you at some other point, maybe on a on a different show, but we're coming close to the the end of our time frame here. Now you've got a website, peopleformula.com. Yes. And you've got your books, which I mentioned briefly, but I'm going to put links in the in the show notes onto the Code of Trust. It's not all about me and sizing people up. Is there anything else in the works that you're working on right now?
1: Uh, sure. Everyone's always welcome to tune into my podcast as well. It's called Forged by Trust, mm-hmm. where I talk to great folks like you and I do what we did here. I love picking apart behaviors to find out why people are awesome and how they forge trust in their own lives. Again, I love taking the anecdotal experience of others and breaking it down to real actions and so other thing i love is is you know like like yourself you know i saw behind you you have your retired navy captain's uh, shadow box there's a great story there because you did not arrive at this place in life with such great success without beautiful humbling moments that you learned along the way great teachers mentors and guys
0: and those are the ones i love hearing about well thank you very much robin for being part of our show for everybody out there, thank you for being part of CISO Tradecraft, and we hope that you found this of great interest. We're going to put some really useful things in the show notes, and of course, don't forget about Forged by Trust, because now you can listen to Robin Drake's podcast as well, because I think you'll find a lot more wisdom there. This is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, stay safe.